One of the most interesting aspects of being a pastor is the reaction I get when people whom I have just met find out that I'm a pastor. The classic situation was one I used to encounter when I played golf. Occasionally, I would uh, go play with maybe just one other friend, and because most courses are extremely crowded, we would usually be paired with another twosome of people that we didn't know. They just happened to be twosome also. Now, as anyone who has ever played the game of golf before can attest, the game is not known for bringing out the best behavior, uh, especially in men. The game itself can be overwhelmingly frustrating, which often leads to a lot of really foul language. And it has also often been a space that many men have believed was safe for allowing their inner crudeness to be let free. So by the third or fourth hole, there's usually been a fair amount of cursing, maybe a crude story, a crude joke. And then all of us newly introduced golfing buddies get to the inevitable question, so what do you do for a living? I always know it's coming. The only variable is how long it takes till it comes out. And then the fun begins. Occasionally I'll get sort of an indifferent, uh, okay, and we just move on after I tell them I'm a pastor. More often, I get the embarrassed apology. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. If I had known, I never would have, you know, whatever, said what I said or did what I did. The specific assumption is that as a representative of the Christian church, I'm going to be somehow offended or upset by the foul language or by people revealing their crudeness. And the more general assumption is that Christianity is about do's and don'ts, about regulation of actions and words. In fact, one of the other responses I hear a lot when people find out I'm a pastor is, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a, and then fill in the blank, Catholic or Lutheran or whatever, but I'm not a good one. I hear that all the time. And generally what they mean by that is they don't attend services, They do drink and swear and do other things, and they just generally don't abide by the rules of what is supposedly good behavior by the church's standard. Now, in the grand scheme, I believe that all these things, uh, the do's and don'ts mostly of, of church, I believe that they're healthy, they're helpful, and I usually find it pretty funny seeing people's reactions uh, over meeting a pastor. However, it does sadden me that so many people think that the essence of Christianity is about being good. Going to church on Sunday, reading the Bible, tithing, not swearing, not drinking, not going to nightclubs. What I love about the story that we have from Luke this morning is that it reminds us of what is truly important. And what we see revealed is that Jesus doesn't want good Christians. Jesus wants loving followers. 
Luke sets up this story right away as a contrast between two people who we can view as representatives of these two possibilities. Someone who is good, a good practitioner of their religion, and someone who is a loving follower of Jesus. First, we have Simon, the Pharisee. We hear in verse 36, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so they went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Pharisees were not uh, clergy. They were not priests. They were lay people who took their religion very seriously. Whatever the practice was, whatever the do's and don'ts were for the general population, the Pharisees went even further and were more strict about it all. They obeyed their religion religiously. And it's important for us to recognize that Jesus accepts the invitation to dine with Simon. The Pharisee invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went. Jesus went to the house and reclined at table. Jesus accepts Simon for who he is and where he is in life. To dine in the home, to recline at the table of someone was a fairly intimate encounter. Jesus accepted the invitation to commune with this very religious man. So there's Simon the Pharisee. And Luke's story includes someone else. Very different. A woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. I took a little break after those different pieces because each of those descriptions is a mark against her in terms of the religion of that time and place. As a woman, she had no legal rights, wasn't even much considered apart from if she had a husband. She also had not been good. She was sinful. And she was from that town, and so her sinfulness was known. Was well known by everybody. On top of that, in the story itself, she behaves entirely inappropriately. First off, she drew attention to herself. Oddly to us, it was fairly typical to have an audience for a meal. Uh, for if there was a, a a noted rabbi, a teacher of some sort that was invited to dinner at the local wealthy person's home. Uh, they, there would be people that were welcome to come into uh, the, the courtyard where the meal was held and just sort of sit around the edges and hear from this respected teacher. So it, it, was, it wasn't unusual that she was there, but people who were there as part of essentially the audience, were supposed to be a part of the scenery, especially as a woman. But she makes herself known, very much so. She's weeping at his feet. Then she let her hair down. (gasps) 
No religiously respectable woman would ever do that in public. Honestly, it was pretty equivalent to exposing yourself in our society. And finally, she not only touched his feet with her hair, she kissed his feet. Feet were disgusting. Roads were dirt. Shoes were no better than flip-flops. Everything about her and what she did was wrong or bad or both. And yet, of the two, who does Jesus affirm? The scrupulously religious man or the notoriously sinful woman? The answer comes as a shock to conventional religion. Jesus affirms the notoriously sinful woman, not because of her sinful past, but because of her loving gratitude. The scrupulously religious man remained skeptical and removed from both the woman and Jesus. William Barclay, the Scottish pastor from a previous century, details what common courtesy would have dictated from Simon as the host. He writes, when a guest entered such a house, three things were always done. The host placed his hand on the guest's shoulder and gave him a kiss of peace. That would be a mark of respect. The roads were only dust tracks and shoes were only soles held in place by straps across the foot. So always cool water was poured over the guests' feet to cleanse and comfort them. Either a pinch of sweet-smelling incense was burned or a drop of adder of roses was placed on the guest's head. So even though Simon is the one who invited Jesus to dinner, Simon offered none of these things, even as host. In contrast, the woman ends up being the one who provides for this welcome of Jesus with her overwhelming gestures of love. Verse 44, then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And I love the way that Jesus forces Simon to view this woman as a model even for himself, a Pharisee. Pharisees were supposed to be the model for everyone else. And yet Jesus forces Simon to see her. Jesus tells his little story about the two debtors both being forgiven, and then we hear him say, or then we hear Luke writes, Jesus turned toward the woman, so he's facing the woman, but he's speaking to Simon, and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? 
This whole story is crafted for all hearers to look at her as Jesus does. In fact, at the very beginning of this story, Luke introduces us to the Pharisee, Simon, uh, a Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner. And then in the next verse, 37, the Greek translates literally, and behold, a woman. Again, this is, I, I've mentioned this little word, idu, in the Greek. It, it's from the, the person who's writing. It's basically a way to say, stop, everybody, not just whoever's speaking in the story. I'm talking to you, reader, as an author. Look, see this person, this woman. Howard Marshall, uh, uh, another Scottish uh, theologian, puts it like this. The central feature in the story, as brought out in the parable of the two debtors as well, is the contrast between the love shown by the woman to Jesus and the lack of love shown by Simon the Pharisee, as evidenced by the varying measures of generosity shown by them to Jesus. And the story closes with Jesus affirming that love is more important to him than purity because after he points out the contrast between Simon and the woman, he says, therefore I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much, but the one who has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus said to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Notice in our Hebrew First Testament reading what actions it is that God desires from us. It's not about fasting, which was a very uh, religious practice. Instead, we hear, this is what I'm after. Break the chains of injustice. Rid, uh, get rid of exploitation in the work, workplace. Free the oppressed. Cancel debts. Share your food with the hungry. Invite the homeless poor into your home. Putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad. Being available to your own families. These are not religious practices focused on the temple or the synagogue or Sunday morning service. These are actions that seek to help and benefit other human beings, especially the oppressed, the outcast, and overlooked. The motivation for these actions is the overflow from the love that we receive from God. That's what we hear John affirming in that letter that uh, he wrote and that we read part of. My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. And he says, this is how God showed love for us. God sent Jesus into the world so we might live through him. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. And then he says, okay, Dear loved ones, since 
God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. Jesus doesn't want good Christians. Jesus wants loving followers. The key for most of us in becoming more loving followers of Jesus is understanding our own need for forgiveness. In that parable that Jesus told to Simon about the two people who owed money, one 500 denarii, the other 50, the most important point isn't the different amounts each person owed. Truly, it's that they both owed money. They were both indebted. So when the debts were forgiven, both people should have experienced gratitude, thanksgiving, for having been let go of that burden. In the story surrounding the parable, both the woman and Simon, the Pharisee, need the salvation that Jesus offers. And clearly the woman is very aware of that. But Simon seems to be above it all. Like, he doesn't need that. Again, Howard Marshall adds clarity here. In the end, talk of greater or lesser amounts of gratitude is irrelevant. As the sinner comes to realize the magnitude of his or her own personal debt to the Savior. Hence, the story ultimately asks those who have little love for Jesus whether they have realized the magnitude of their own sin and their own need for forgiveness. No matter how religious we are, or how good or bad we are at being religious, we all fall short of the glory of God. And yet, God has forgiven us in and through Jesus. In Christ, we are reconciled as children to our loving God. What great news that should fill our hearts every morning and every day. All of our religious practices, this gathering, the do's and don'ts, all of those things are meant merely to remind us of these truths, that we have broken our relationship with God and one another, but Jesus offers us forgiveness and reconciliation. And knowing that ideally fills our heart with so much love that it spills over to all the others we encounter. This is the essence of our faith. This is what I wish people would think of that a pastor represents, whether on the golf course or anywhere. Jesus doesn't focus our eyes on Simon, the Pharisee, and his scrupulous religious practices. Jesus tells even Simon, look at the generous love of this woman. Simon, be like her. Less religion, more love. May it be so for all of us. Amen.